This is an ABC podcast. Midnight Oil have been around for more than four decades now. Now, you'd think by now these guys would be sitting on stools, wearing hats, doing acoustic versions of their old songs, but not Midnight Oil. They look as fit as butcher's dogs, and they're as frenetic and as urgent as ever. Peter Garrett is here today, and I should tell you, the only other time I've met Peter was when I was in my teens. I was in Canberra with my sister and a couple of friends, and we were standing outside the ANU refectory where Midnight Oil were about to play. And this was early 80s, around about their place without a postcard era. We didn't have enough money to get in, but then we saw Peter Garrett dashing into the backstage area and we ran up to him and Peter was incredibly nice. And he led us in to watch the show from the side of the stage. And it was wild and incredibly exciting. And this was my first proper rock and roll show. So there, Peter Garrett, I've exposed him as a nice guy. Midnight Oil have always mixed music with politics, campaigning for environmental action, Aboriginal land rights, and acknowledging both the beauty of Australia and the darker side of our history. Midnight Oil always wanted to do things on their own terms and to operate almost entirely outside the mass market music industry. And they succeeded. And they became a huge international band playing all over the world. Hello, Peter. Welcome. Hi, Richard. Uh, it's good to be yarning to you. Seeing Midnight Oil in Canberra, I think, like I said, that might have been my first gig seeing a proper, sweaty, full-on, intense, sort of mind-jarring rock and roll band. Was there a band like that for you? Do you remember that, going to a gig like that and sort of going, whoa, whoa that, that's what this rock and roll thing is really about? Uh, yeah, well, Radio Birdman used oh, to play yeah. at the top of Oxford Street in Sydney in, a, in the little bar club thing it was called The Fun House. And I had gone to see them in the early stages of our career and they were a ferocious band, particularly at that point in time. And Rob Younger, the lead singer, got himself in a pretty high state, which I thought was extremely cool, um, but, but also very convincing. And that'd probably be one of the few that I would have seen or that we would have seen that sort of switched us on a bit. Um, the other thing probably is that we came, well, the boys, certainly Rob and Jim, who played together at school, came out of a more progressive rock setting. I came out of a slightly ordinary, actually, Canberra um, rock band. And at the same time as we began, punk was breaking over us. And then, of course, what was then called the new wave, which was much more do-it-yourself, much more rough and ready. And it was really that principle of anyone can have a go and see where they end up. So I think we just took that general sentiment onto the stage, but I'd never really seen anyone, um, and I've never really known anyone in our early period who maybe attacked it quite as much as we did. It wasn't until uh, we started to travel that we saw a few other acts that, you know, had some high octane about them. Maybe that was what the pleasure of the night was. You had that punk rock ethos, which wasn't like... there was like you playing down to the crowd. You were very much of the crowd that night. You were determined to give us all a good time and you were sort of there being the life of the party. Is that how you saw yourselves as performers on stage? Not really. I think it's one of those funny things, isn't it, that d depending which side of the mirror you're on, you, you get an entirely different view reflected back at you. And I think our attitude about it has always been... If it's working for us on stage, then hopefully it's working for everybody else in the room. And if it's working for us on stage, then we can take it somewhere else because we're confident in the songs and what we're saying. And then for me, it was a case of, look, I'm not asking you to like what we're doing, but we do want to communicate with you and share whatever it is we've got and react to the energy of a room full of people without pandering to it and doing little dance steps or whatever that might entertain. So I don't think we've seen ourselves, and I certainly don't see myself predominantly as an entertainer, although I totally get that it is an entertainment exercise. It's more about sharing the space, us as the producers of the racket and other people as the ones that hopefully find it amenable. You were also singing about Australian things in an Australian accent and Australian history. It was very very much about living in Australia, what it was like to live in the suburbs, pretty much. I remember you opened up with I Don't Want to Be the One, which is, it was an anti-complacency song. Was there much of that around when you were starting to listen to music as a teenager? Was there much you were hearing that was being sung in an Australian accent about Australian stories? Not really, and... You're quite right. Uh, it was something which we took up and, and wanted to have at the sort of centre of 
of our way of being and our way of creating, if you like. I mean, I was quite strongly influenced by uh, a Melbourne band called Skyhooks, who oh, I yeah. think were one of the first in sort of pop rock annals that were unabashedly Australian and, and you know, made a virtue out of it. And it was particularly galling to find that a lot of our contemporaries or bands that we'd grown up with essentially seemed to be channeling whatever the, the hits and misses of, of LA or, or London might have been, more specifically America probably, and actually singing in American accents. I still hear people singing uh, in American accents, particularly some of our country music colleagues, and I must admit I do blanche. Yeah, I hate it. I really hate yeah, it. I do it's too. Like, you're kind of like wearing the skin of someone else. Why do you think that is? I think it's partly because the industry demands repetition and safety. I mean, people use the expression cultural cringe and you would have talked to others on your program and you hear it a bit on the ABC and in other places that there still is a cultural cringe. Maybe there is. For me, there's two aspects to it. One is that I couldn't change the way I talk or the way I sing to conform to someone else's idea of what I should sound like or what Midnight Oil should sound like. That is an anathema. And in our early period in particular, people weren't that impressed with my singing anyway, so we had to battle on... Uh, irrespective. But the second thing about it, which strikes me as a bit obvious, is that the people who are singing in an American accent in Nashville are bloody good singers and songwriters. So what is it that's going to cast you out as being as good or as or even better than them if you're singing in their accent, but you come, you know, from Maxville or wherever it might be? And by the time we did eventually break through internationally, there's no question that our distinctiveness was, was one, of, one of the markers for us. Peter, you grew up in Pimble, the upper north shore of Sydney. Now, in the 50s and 60s, that would have been the outer, outer limits of Australian suburbia. What images do you have in your head of growing up in that part of the world at that time? Yeah, well, look, I actually grew up, yes, West Pimble, as it were. And outer on the Pimble. Fringes, <laughs> <Right>. Exactly. <laughs> so, say no more. Uh, I think the abiding memory I have is of the bush and it probably goes some way towards explaining uh, the great affection that I've got for the Australian landscape and environment generally. And as well as that, what we might describe as the archetypal figures of, of hills hoists in the backyard and paling fences and kids riding billy carts and front lawns sort of battling against Australian summers. Mm. And, you know, without um, glorifying it too much, it was an utterly unique experience and the mix of people living there as opposed to perhaps um, people closer to what we would now understand as the suburbs of the North Shore, you know, Pimble, Linfield, Taramara and what have you, were a mix. It was a mix of people because the housing was more cheap, was cheaper there and I could just run across the road and I'd be in what is now Lane Cove National Park probably, but certainly into the bush. And I did that for many, many years, both when I lived in West Pimble and also in Linfield. As a teenage boy scout, you were a bit of a wannabe Thor Heyerdahl and you built yourself a raft. Tell me that story of, of what your ambitions were for this raft and how you pieced it together, please, Peter. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure that my fellow uh, chargers were as excited about it as I was, but in any event, we, we, we were camping. It was a boy scout camp. I was the troop leader, a person who had some nominal authority and say over what we should do. So it just seemed like a good idea at the time, didn't it, to... Um, borrow some 44-gallon drums and <laughs> find some old bits of rope and, and wire and what have you and lash what probably was sort of a packing crate from memory on top of the 44-gallon drums, ma manufacture some would-be oars from uh, paling fences, as of course it turned out, uh, and head out to sea at McMaster's Beach on the central coast. Where were you planning to go? <laughs> what was the idea? Did you have a plan? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I probably had an idea in my head that we were Thor Heyerdahl and his crew, you know. <laughs> Easter <laughs> Island, here we come. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll make a movie about it. Uh, we were just mucking around having mm. fun, really. But we wanted to get beyond the line of breakers and, and, and explore the coast, really, I think, uh, probably was the idea and sort of see what it looked like when we got out to sea. But uh, it, it, was, it was not a seaworthy craft and the first uh, decent bit of swell that hit us knocked us for six and that was the end of that game. Although you had a, this lovely childhood, a very healthy childhood with a lot of time outdoors, you had really serious asthma as a kid, really properly serious asthma and spent time in an oxygen tent. How frustrating was that for you? 
Well, uh, pretty frustrating. And I, I mean, people who have either had it or, or have family members or friends that have got it will know that it's a particularly debilitating condition and it's a hard one. But I think especially when you're young, particularly in your teen years, you know, when you really just want to be out and about. And uh, I mean, I chose my own um, path through that, and I'm certainly not suggesting that it's everybody's. But I, eventually, at those days, in those days, they'd give you um, sort of puffers to, to puff on. And my dad was partly asthmatic as well, but it didn't seem like it was working for me. So um, after a couple of really bad attacks, which were partly relieved by the puffers, but not entirely. I just happened upon this thought that, well, if I can just get fitter and be outdoors even more and learn to breathe well, then maybe I'll, I'll get lucky and, and I can get on top of it, which I partly did and I think I partly grew out of it as well. But it is very frustrating, particularly if you're in an athletics competition or if you want to experience the exhilaration of being young and being free to do whatever you want, whether it was skateboarding or hanging out with mates or whatever, it's something you've got to carry around with you. So I, I, I was fortunate that I was able to basically manage it and then it pretty much left me. Jim Sharman was on the show years ago and it's a theory of his I've often thought about and mentioned on this show in the past. He had this theory. He, he had um, uh, a period when he was bedridden as a teenager. He has a theory that he says that if you look at people who've gone on to do quite big things with their lives, you can almost always find a period in their youth where they've had an extended period of convalescence, where you've been forced to not go out outside, stay in bed and get well again. Do you think there's something there in, in that for you? Well, I've never heard it before, Richard, but I, I mean, speaking from my own experience, I think that for me, there, there would be something in it in a way. You are confined to quarters, so to speak. You're aware that there's this whole world going on outside you. You can hear it. You can hear kids playing. You can hear birds singing and so on. But you can't actually be in the midst of all of that. But I think it also builds a yearning that even when you are better or even when the chance comes and you really, you really will grab it. The most obvious example would be the Paralympics, how incredible these yeah. people are and how just, I mean, they are they're truly inspirational and astonishing. And that's born of that thing of, well, I need to survive, I need to overcome. And it probably develops an internal toughness that actually stays with you and, and helps you get through tougher times and prevail sometimes, you know. I mean, you're not going to prevail all the time. Uh, it's life after all, but it certainly equips you pretty well for the battle. Surfing's always been a source of pleasure and relaxation for you. What was the first board you got, Peter? It was an old Barry Bennett. was a nine-footer in the old measurements, very heavy, required uh, two people to carry it, uh, <laughs> myself and, 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 my, and my dad. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was more or less like riding a large table, and <laughs> needless to say, <laughs> not... Not, not, a, not particularly um, great for the business of catching waves, but I managed to catch a few with it and have always loved being in the water, as you say. I mean, we're incredibly blessed in Australia. You know, we've got, I think, seriously the most beautiful, intact coastline on the planet. It's accessible to many of us. Many of us live very close to it. And I've always felt that, particularly for young men and also for young women, that being able to get in the water, to test yourself, to experience the healing powers of nature, but also the amazing sort of challenge of, of growing up and taking risks and is the surf too big or too small and in the surf life-saving fraternity, you know, the business of sort of giving to others and so on and so forth. There's so many dimensions to our relationship with the sea for Australians and for first Australians as well, it was incredibly important that it's contributing to our overall well-being and to our psychological well-being. It certainly did for me, yeah. So from that big nine-foot board, I battled on gamely. So you brought up in this nice middle-class environment in the Upper North Shore and your parents sent you to a private school in your teen years. What was it that radicalised you, Peter? Well, I think probably a combination of things. I think my parents were pretty open to political discussion around the table, even though they were different political persuasions. My mum was much more minded to Labor and, and my dad was much more a Liberal voter. But, but the discussion was seemed like a natural thing to happen and their friends and people who visited were a little bit like that as well. There was an underlying sense that, look, if you do believe something's right or wrong, uh, don't be afraid to say something about it or to act upon it. I think additionally, additionally to that would have been uh, the Vietnam War and a sense that in the school that I went to, people weren't particularly motivated, it seemed at the time, 
by what was clearly a wrong place for Australians and young Australians in particular to be. And that would have had something to do with it. And then I think probably the final stage of it, Richard, would be, you know, once, well, university experiences, of course. And we're talking historically now, so it's a time of some social upheaval, the struggles in the campaign against apartheid in South Africa. And then out of that, you could add just the experience of basically being, you know, on the road troubadours and seeing what was going on around us. So it's a mixture of things, isn't it, really? But it just seems to have been a little bit in the DNA and a little bit in, in the way that I lived after that. Do you think you might be in some ways a product of the old, very old Protestant tradition of nonconformism? You know, that old tradition of Martin Luther, speak truth to power, don't be afraid of what people think of you, stand up for what's right no matter what and be ready to cop abuse for it. How true is that? Look, I don't really know. It's, uh, it's a provocative question, and to be honest, I'd never thought of it. I mean, I certainly believe in speaking truth to power, but then I've been in power as well, and so I've had truth spoken to me. <laughs> <laughs> Cuts both ways, doesn't it? That's Australia, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right, which is why we love it. But uh, I, I think there is something in that in, a, in another way, and it's an interesting reflection in as much as whether that tradition is handed down and that permeated down into, into my middle-class upbringing or not. I couldn't really say, but maybe it did a bit. Nice thought if it did. You moved to Canberra to study law at ANU, and you were there, I think, about 10 years before I was. Now, when I moved to Canberra in the early 80s, the thing that really profoundly shocked me about the place was, apart from its weird geography, was how amazingly vibrant its local music scene was, like punk rock had yeah. come to Canberra, and that was really meaningful in a place like Canberra. What was it like in your era when you were there at, in Canberra? Well, that scene, you're right, that scene really developed in the time that, that you were there, and we can think of a, a couple of bands particularly that came out of that. I mean, the church is the obvious one, but there are others, and, you know, you and your former life as well, but... Years earlier, it wasn't quite as spontaneous and homegrown. It was more about playing in the pubs and the clubs on the weekends in particular or at the uni occasionally and playing for an audience that was really there to chat one another up and weren't that interested in the music. There's one exception to that, though, and that is being on campus, we did get a lot of music coming through and I was transfixed by it. I, I fell in love with, with music when I heard it. I heard Renee Gaya when she first came through with her band. Skyhooks I saw, who, uh, as I said earlier, really had an impact on me. Chain, Lake, you know, there's a whole bunch of different bands. of Daddy Cool, there's bands of that era and they weren't necessarily mimics. They were the real deal and uh, it was wonderful to hear that on campus. Once you got out to Waniassa or if you went out and played at Yes, or you went down to Cooma or Queenbian, you were in a big pub or a club and uh, you were really background noise. Seeing those bands at the time playing at that smaller scale, was there a sense you identified with them? Did you look at them on stage and go, ah, oh, these are my people? Did you have that feeling? I, I was really intrigued by what they were doing and how they did it and I couldn't quite figure out how they did it and I did go and see... Um, Muddy Waters and his band, who, believe it or not, played in a circus tent out near Ainsley. Uh, I know. Did he, did he ever look on his face like, what the hell is this place? <laughs> no, he was the consummate showman. Right. Wow. Came on and just said, I got my mojo working, you know, and, 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 and made it happen. So I think I was, I was really getting drawn into that sense of it and I eventually formed a band. And that came out of a, a, a long love of music. I mean, I sang in church choirs and school choirs when I was a kid. So even though technically I didn't have a voice that marked me out, I, I did enjoy the business of singing and it probably had a bit to do with my asthma as well because it's such a wonderful thing for you to do. And you feel good when you sing. I mean, you know, I, I love these community choirs and when I was education minister, I just, just love going and listening to primary school kids just bellowing their heart out about whatever it might be, whatever song the teacher had taught them because you can see how happy they are. Yet I think at that stage I didn't really... I could I could see it and I knew it, but I couldn't really get it. And I went and saw Rod Stewart and the Faces play in 71 or 72. They played at the Sydney showground. They ran late. They landed in a helicopter. They were drunk. Rod Stewart fell over on stage. Um, it was really a shambolic show, even by the Faces sort of history. And everyone cheered and <laughs> thought it was wonderful. And I thought, well, if that's wonderful, then maybe there's hope, you know. It was the low threshold of rock and roll that had attracted you. Yeah, well, I mean, he's gone, he's gone on to have a really enduring yeah. career, so I shouldn't, shouldn't uh, take, make too much fun of him. He's an incredible performer and singer, Rod, but that wasn't the night. And it was interesting for me because 
you know, in some ways you look from a distance. I mean, I'm sure it's like young actors yeah. or writers or, or anyone when you're younger and you, you look at someone who's reached that point and you think, how, how do they do it? How do they get there? But, of course, um, it's all doable. It's just a matter of per persevering and, and, and getting on with it and eventually you, you may find yourself in that state at some point down the track. There's a well-known story that you got the job with Midnight Oil, which was then called Farm, by answering a help-wanted ad in the Sydney Morning Herald, which is wild. I think that's just hilarious. And you got the gig and went on a tour of the South Coast. Was it very DIY? Were you doing the whole thing yourself? I was deeply DIY. I mean, Rob and a friend of his and a couple of others essentially sort of organised tours. He was ringing up the people that were managing the School of Arts halls and the Masonic halls or whatever it might be and saying, look, can we rent your hall and, and put on a show there? I tagged along, essentially, particularly on that first run. And they were younger than me. They were a bunch of school kids going down the coast. But I ha had to say, I really admired the chutzpah, you know. Um, slept on the beach, slept under our cars, um, played at night to whoever showed up and paid $3. And it was absolutely wonderful. And, of course, I got to surf during the day as well, so I was pretty much in heaven. And that, I think, we continued to do, you know, obviously with more equipment and more people coming and so on and so forth, and more structure around what we were doing. But we continued to do that for a long time. And it was a really interesting way of creating this thing called Midnight Oil because on the one hand we were quite cerebral and, you know, Rob, and, Rob Hurst and Jim and Jenny, wonderful, wonderful songwriters and sort of absorbing what we were seeing around us and trying to figure out where we put it, whilst at the same time, instead of being in a hotel or a motel on the other side of the club, we were in this beach suburban setting uh, amongst it. And, and for me especially, but for the others as well, you know, we were just doing those things during the day and connecting with people in that way. And I think, like any other part of a career, that early period sort of sets you up. So we were immune, if you like, and certainly not aware, particularly, of... Uh, what was what was the ins and outs of how people were thinking about what we were doing? I mean, of course, we read the music press a bit and NME and the local rags and so on and so forth, but it wasn't our starting point. Our starting point was how do we get this song into the set and play it in a club where they've still got the pokies outside and they won't let us put our lights up and, 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 and we want to control that, env that environment and, and, and set the conditions, essentially, of those shows, you know, setting the prices and making sure that the toilets were working and so on and so forth. So we, we had a very different thing going on in some ways in those days. So this is born, and I absolutely know what you mean by this, of a conviction that we don't need you to love us, but we really need you to pay attention. We are not going yeah. to be ignored. We will not be ignored by you. No, absolutely. And we play loud and hard and fast, and I would say whatever I thought. And if people didn't like it, and even if the people that had hired us didn't like it, well, we really literally could not care at all and we went off to the next town or the next suburb and did it all over again. It was said that in those days, the late 70s, early 80s, Sydney and Melbourne had the biggest pub music scenes in the world. It, that was often yeah. being said in those days and I, that was certainly my recollection of it. Can you paint me a picture of what it was like to play in those heaving, tightly packed rooms back in those days, Peter? Well, just imagine bringing all your friends to a party and then a whole bunch of other strangers that you don't know, cramming them into a much smaller space than otherwise might feel comfortable, closing the doors and the windows and down in one corner are uh, a bunch of people, you know, just absolutely making the biggest and smashiest noise that they can possibly make and talking and sharing that with one another with no regard for the mores of, of popular cultural society. And, I mean, it wasn't animalistic, but it was certainly... Um, I can't quite find the adjective for it, but it was very primal. But it was also beautiful. Uh, I mean, in the Antler and some of these places that we played, where, of course, we were making so much noise that the neighbours were complaining, the police would be called to, to shut us down, so, you know, the venue owners would close everything up. It would literally be so hot that we'd create our own little internal weather system and eventually it would just be raining all over us, including on the stage. <laughs> Microphones, would, you know, would be short-circuiting and amps would be blowing up and people would be fainting and collapsing and so on and so forth. And, you know, somehow we survived it all, uh, both band and audience. And I think um, apart from that amazing physicality that was going on there and the fact that there wasn't someone 
saying, oh, excuse me, you know, politely, um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bump into you, but more to the case of, look, if you spill more beer down the back of my T-shirt, maybe you might share that beer with me. A apart from that, it wasn't just us. It was Radiators, it was Jimmy and the Boys, it was The Angels, it was Cold Chisel, it was Dragon, it was Ice House, it was Mental as Anything, it was Paul Kelly. It was on and on and on. You can go through uh, this list of bands. And that was the hot house, literally, <laughs> but also in terms of knowing that someone else was coming there a couple of nights later to play as well, that just created a great energy, a great fertility of music and composition, and it hardened all of us uh, to, be, to be, you know, stage performers and, and you, you became a bit of a veteran of, of the performance. So you can really walk on anywhere in any part of the world and be confident that you won't make a fool of yourself. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Peter, that pub scene, the inner city pub scene you were a part of with Midnight Oil, but that was a real true counterculture. It was, it was hugely popular, but really largely unseen by the mass media of the day. I, I know you were kind of torn by that need to be seen and heard, but not through Countdown or through commercial radio. Was that how it was at the time? Yeah, it, it was in part. I think, I think that we realised that the connection between us and that audience was probably the most important thing that we had going for us. And we certainly struggled to be heard, even in our early period, at all by the media. It really wasn't until uh, the ABC news station of its day, Double J, which you can still listen to, but of course morphed into Triple J, started to play us and play some of these bands that we ever got heard on the airwaves. But there was something else at play, and that was uh, we made the break into the suburbs pretty early, partly because uh, we knew that that's where the audiences were, but partly because... We also knew that's where the loyalty was. And when I say loyalty, I don't, I don't mean it in sort of obeisance of bowing down, but it was more that people there were connecting with you when you showed up to play in their backyard. They didn't necessarily like us to begin with, and sometimes, you know, we'd get a hostile reaction. But that didn't matter. What mattered was that it wasn't being mediated by, you know, critics or the intellectual classes or, or other media. It was literally a direct connection between us and them. And that's essentially the model that we use in Europe and, and the States as well, not sitting down with a little plan and a spreadsheet, but just basically saying, look, we've just got to go out and play to people. It's pretty basic. And if we do that, then uh, whatever unfolds will be real and hopefully it can endure. When you were 23 and Midnight Oil was on the up and up, You've written about how your mum died in this horrible, horrible fire. The family home was burnt to the ground and your mum was trapped inside. You barely got out yourself. Just jumping a bit f further forward here, you do a fair bit of pastoral care when you're a member of parliament. Did you draw on that? When What kind of things would you say to people who've been through some awful loss like that about how you get from wherever that is to some better place? Did you have advice for, for people when they came to talk to you about that, about how you get from there to here, Peter? Well, yes, but I think it's something that, I mean, it's not even case by case, it's sort of person by person and moment by moment, those interactions. And I know when bushfires outside of Melbourne, Marysville and so on and so forth happened and I was one of the first police to go in with the then Victorian Premier and actually made some relationships that, that stay till this day. But I think one of the things you can say to people, if they want to talk to you in that way and if you can see that to open up to them wouldn't be something which was either an imposition or, or even just a bit um, daunting to manage is, look, pain and grief, uh, you never forget, but it does pass. 
And in some ways, you have to honour the memory and the relationship that you've had with someone when you lose them, particularly if it's as close as someone like a parent or a sibling or a very close friend. And in my case, even in circumstances which at the time were traumatic, that they wouldn't wish you to simply have it as a sore, a running sore that you carry around with yourself for the rest of your life. And you owe it to yourself and owe it to them to acknowledge it and to engage and to, to, to relate and so on to, to it, but, it, but the pain itself does lessen over time. And it might take quite a long time. And I used to say to people, you know, give yourself seven years, which might sound either optimistic or pessimistic, but that was sort of my experience. And you will survive it. And when you do, you'll come out of it both stronger, but you'll also have this abiding memory and a good memory, hopefully, of the person that you've lost. Grief like that in such circumstances, if you looked at it one way, you can see grief as, as like a wound of love. After you've been through that, do you need to remind yourself to be open to love after you, you've gone through something terrible like that ordeal? So I think it depends on, on the relationship that you've had and the relationship that you've lost. If it's a mother, they are the givers of unconditional love for, for their children and it shouldn't be an impediment to you uh, having your heart open. It's also very much a case of circumstance and what that relationship was like beforehand. And I think for me at least, and I can only speak for myself in this, uh, I was very close to my mum and missed her and still miss her terribly, but uh, she was a very loving person, very open to people, you know, had a very generous disposition. And if you take a bit of that with you, if you're lucky enough to take a bit of that with you, then um, it, sh it should mean that you're open to the, up to the possibilities of of stuff happening in the future. One of the best things about being a touring musician, if you tour properly, is you go and see Australia properly. And I think you can grow up in the suburbs or on the coast and see images of central Australia, but it's not till you go there that you go, oh, oh my God, that's what it's like. It's, mm. it's, it's just, it floors you for a little bit. How were you introduced to that world of central Australia and what effect did it have on you? Well, no, you're, you're quite right about that. I think the centre of the country is as alive, if not more so, than many other parts of the country. And we were able to go and to tour and to play there. As a consequence, partly, I went to Arnhem Land. I had a friend who was teaching in Arnhem Land, so I drove across and, you know, scales fell off the eyes sort of experience as I went from Charters Towers across and then up and then down again. And we hatched a plan for us to do a little gig uh, at the school that he was teaching in which was sort of south of Nullumboy, uh, up in the NT. But at the same time, uh, we developed a relationship with a land rights lawyer who was acting for people of the Western Desert in the handback of Uluru, which eventually was handed back to traditional owners and became a national park, as many people would know. And out of that, we actually went to tour. We wrote songs for a film celebrating the handback. And as is well known now, at least in our world, it was the experience that not only opened us up to the beauty of the country, but also in some ways more importantly to the depth of culture that First Nations Aboriginal people had there and the fact that where we had been living and how we had been living bore absolutely no resemblance to what we experienced when we started to play in these communities. And we were there with the Warumpi Band, uh, a band that had three Aboriginal musicians and, and a white fella Neil Murray uh, playing guitar with them, who knew the area much better than we did, and essentially partly became our guides, as it were, out there. And the entire experience, and there's so much to say about it, but it's reflected on the Diesel and Dust record, and it's reflected in our preoccupations, if you like, ever since then, with questions of a treaty, with questions of, of settling and reconciling Australia's colonial history, its invasion history, as against the people that were living here as the first Australians and who are still here. And it also, of course, uh, stimulated the songwriting. I mean, you think about a song like Truganini, you know, one of Rob's songs, or Gun Barrel Highway, you know, one of Jimmy's songs, and, you know, the stuff that we were working on, Dead Heart, which we wrote, and so on and so forth. I mean, it really brought out some songs from us that probably never would have seen the light of day. We never would have been able to summons them up if we hadn't been out there. Around about the same time that Midnight I was releasing your breakthrough album, Diesel and Dust, you met a man named Philip Toyne. It was to be a really important partnership for you. Tell me about Philip Toyne. I remember him. What, what was your introduction to the man like? Yeah, well, look, Philip Toyne was a land rights lawyer for people living around Mutajulu and people living in the Pichincharra lands. 
And it was just one of those things, Richard, you know, sometimes you, you meet somebody and you make a connection which is very strong and he had called us to say that the traditional owners and elders had seen and heard about Midnight Oil, that they were a sort of political band and would we be interested in doing some songs for a film that they were making about the handback of the rock? And we said, yes, we'd love to. And Rob started beavering away straight away before we even got there. But uh, when we visited Alice Springs, I visited Philip and we got to know one another. And he struck me as somebody who was fearless, a great advocate and a very good lawyer at the time. And right on the front line of that really sweet spot between smart activism and delivering results in a way which was beneficial to the whole good of the country. And in this case, to those Aboriginal people that he was representing. And we flew down uh, to, I think, Warrakoona or Warburton, I can't remember which community, but we flew, the boys went down and he and I flew. He had a little light aircraft that he used to fly from community to community and he was a very good-looking guy and he looked a little bit like Errol Flynn, you know, and he had the black flying jacket and black hair and the, sort of the sunnies and a re really decent fella but also quite a presence. And we flew uh, down across the Gun Barrel Highway with him telling me about his life and us sharing stories and yarns and we became very good friends. So then he went to become the CEO, if that's the word for it, or the, the manager or director of the uh, Australian Conservation Foundation and made you the president of the ACF. What were some of the things that came out of that partnership between you and Philip Toyne? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's the council and the membership that eventually decide the president, but he did ask me would I be interested in coming and, and being involved when he got that job, and I said, yeah, I, I would actually, because we'd already started doing some shows and, and working with conservation groups and environmentalists around the place, but on quite a small scale, and the thought of maybe getting a bit more done working with a big organisation like the ACF was, was attractive to me, and the thought of working with Philip uh, also was attractive. It was a time, Richard, in Australian political history which we haven't seen since, and uh, this isn't to say that it can't happen again, but for where we sit now, it doesn't look like it, it, it will, and I wish it could, where the synchronicity between public opinion, science and awareness, the strength of, of grassroots campaigning, the capacity of organisations to actually participate in elections and maybe even shape outcomes and the mindset of the political classes at the time, in this case particularly Bob Hawke, who was the Labor Prime Minister, really meant that we were able to get some things out the door that when you look back on them, you're really glad that you were a part of that. And there were many, many people involved in those efforts and activities. But just to, to mention a few in passing, we could look at the Antarctica and the fact that it became a place dedicated to humankind instead of just a, another mining site for countries and big companies. We could look at land care, the establishment of land care, uh, the protection of the wet tropics, rainforests in North Queensland, Jervis Bay in New South Wales, particularly on the northern side, was an important campaign. And, and there's a whole bunch of others. And working with Philip was one of those moments for me, outside of the oils, if you like, where I really found common spirit and the sense that you could get stuff done. You know, one of the things that police officers hate about TV crime cop shows is that there's often like the crime is solved by some dramatic moment and a confrontation and guns are produced but really they know the the real work of police work is actually really dogged and boring you sit there and you've actually got to sort of go through every tiny speck of a clue and put it all together and it's it is never there's very rarely this dramatic aha moment and i just wonder if it's like that bringing change working for change particularly when it comes to things like the environment it's not so much a big glamorous speech and then the prime minister's persuaded is it really more like the the kind of dogged work of sitting down with the science and plotting away for it for years? Yeah, I think mostly uh, it is exactly that, uh, although you can have your hallelujah moments. And I, I could think of a number of different campaigns, but the one that strikes me as being one, one example at least is Antarctica. I mean, Hawke and, and even Keating rightly take some credit for it. And as Prime Ministers and Treasurers of the day, they had to sign the documentation, if you like, and change the direction and the policy of the country. But it really started with a group of absolutely dedicated volunteers sitting around a kitchen table in a house in Melbourne, people who's, who, who, who are unknown to the public, and beginning the dogged work of building a case, the lobbying, uh, the raising funds, the getting bigger organisations involved, and basically staying at it for years, for years and years. And I quite often say to people... Uh, who may be right or send an email or whatever, we've got a campaign that we, that we want to, you know, we've got a problem we have to deal with because it's never-ending, the battle to, to protect the natural world. Are you ready to hang in for the long haul? Because my experience is that most of it does take 
exactly what you say, a lot of dogged work. Occasionally, uh, the stars line up and you, and you have that moment when you get across the line, but mostly, yeah, it's just hard graft. 2004, you were tapped to run for the Labor Party for the city of Kingsford Smith in the southern beaches of Sydney around Maroubra, La Perouse, around that, that area. It's actually quite honourable, I think, and it's unusual for an activist to accept the challenge of democratic power, of, of trying to wield power in a democracy. Nonetheless, how did your nomination go over with, you know, the old blue singlet blokes in the, in the party branches once you were nominated in, in that seat, Peter? <laughs> uh, not that well. <laughs> and not that well with some of my compadres either, really. I think most, a lot of people, which, wherever they were sitting, weren't um, too taken up by it. I think for the classic rank-and-file Labor-supporting blue-collar workers, particularly in the southern parts of the electorate, uh, I was a blow-in, I was a celebrity, I was a rocker and I was a radical greenie. So, you know, there was quite a few strikes there to kick me out of the ring, say, look, I'm here and I'm here to serve you as best as I can with the policies of the party I represent. You know, you're not going to necessarily believe me now, but hopefully, you know, we can get to know one another over time. And I just kept on going back. And you do branches as an MP in Kingswood Smith on a Monday night. They pick Monday night, which used to be Four Corners and Q&A and Media Watch and everything else, but you'd be out there uh, visiting the branches and that's what you do. And you take the questions, you talk to people afterwards and you show them that you're fed income about uh, the role. And uh, over time, uh, I would say that most, if not all, of the branches became supportive of me as a local member. I loved being a local member. Why? Uh, Why? I, what did you love about it, Peter? Well, it's partly in your question to me, Richard. You know, I think we, we still completely underrate uh, the essence of democracy as it works within a community or an electorate and the roles that a diligent local member, whatever, whatever side of the fence they're on, can actually play. And that's helping people uh, deal with the centre links and the government agencies. It's having an understanding of what's going on in a place to, to point people in the direction to say, well, no, you don't really want to be talking to the fire people. You want to be talking to the local council. It can be lobbying uh, for services, for homeless shelters. But even more than that, it's actually connecting with people and hearing from them on their terms without any filter. And you set up your little mobile office in a shopping centre down at Pacific Square in Maroubra and for the first three to six months when people had gotten the selfies and autographs and sort of got, gotten over the fact that I'd come off a stage and I was sort of standing around, it didn't matter. My former notoriety was of no importance at all. I was just a local member and it's real. Not always pretty, sometimes difficult and challenging, sometimes incredibly inspiring and innovating. But it's real and you know what's going on in a community. You understand the sports clubs, the people who are struggling. You find out the ones who are volunteering and, and you know, the saints and, and you, you identify the saints and you get to know the sinners. You know, it's incredible. You were elected, well, the Rudd government was elected to power in 2007 and you became Federal Environment Minister. Now, you weren't a, a naive about politics. You'd been inside the Prime Minister's office many times and in the offices of Cabinet Ministers. Nonetheless, were you still surprised by what that meant, to be in the engine room of power and the frustrations and what you can and can't do with high office, Peter? Not surprised so much as hoping that, well, recognising that your time there is by necessity going to be limited and brief, no matter what happens. And very excited at the possibility of what could be done. And also, I think, in my case, particularly aware that it really wouldn't matter what I did. Such was the, was the, the fever around a celebrity candidate and the idea of gotcha moments and so on and so forth that sort of permeates some of our political activity and, and media activity that whatever it was, we were going to be subject to a lot of criticism. Some of it might have been unfair, but that's not the point. I made a decision once I got in there essentially not to spend a lot of time and waste too much energy in an engagement with the current swirling media and what was going on, but rather, because I had been there before, to try and nail down policies and make sure that, you know, the Cabinet and the Treasury agreed with the budgets and get it out the door. And, you know, Richard, in a way, this is what the old school men and women, but certainly the blue-collar people in the branches of botany had an expectation of. They'd had Labor members that had come to them in the past with the program, you know, sort of old-style politics. 
if we are elected, we will do the following, and we're doing it because we think it will make a difference and make things better for us, and we are committed to A, B, C, D and E, and now we're going to get it done. And in some ways, there's another blur of dialogue, and you see it still today, and it's deeply frustrating because underneath it all is clunking along the actual machinery of putting laws in place and applying budgets to it. The NDIS is a really good example, and it's one of the great things that uh, Rudd Gillard governments did, but there are plenty of others. So you've got just got to... I just had to really turn my mind to doing those things as best as I could with the team of people I had around me and hope that I had the political support from the Prime Minister and the Cabinet to get stuff over the line. Well, did you have that under Kevin Rudder? He ran a very hyperkinetic and quite chaotic form of government through his, largely through a kitchen cabinet of four, pretty much, which you were not a member of, as were the greater part of the ministry. What did that mean for you? Did that mean you were just left to get on with it or were you constantly being bogged down by that, that process of government under him? Well, it depended on the issue and it certainly depended on, on that stage of the first Rudd government. I think that Rudd was all over us as a Prime Minister and a leader and I was uh, not used to that in as much as the Prime Ministers that I'd had anything to do with in the past had tended to let their Ministers run their race and if they succeeded, fine, and if they failed, then they lost their jobs. And I think it's fair to say that when we were rolling out the insulation program and we had those tragic deaths of a couple of installers in different states, I didn't feel that I got the support that I'd rolled out the program properly and alerted everybody to what the issues were, but I didn't feel I got the support at the time. That was deserving, but that's politics. But in other instances, uh, for example, taking the Japanese to the International Court of Justice on their so-called scientific whaling program in the Southern Ocean, which was a really big part of my first term as Environment Minister, Rudd was very supportive, and he was very supportive with budgets the whole way through, but environment and the arts, which I had as well, where we just wanted to really try and um, put stuff in place which we thought could make a difference. And I think that, you know, government, whichever way you come at it and who's, who's ever doing it, is never going to be easy. It's never going to be without all of the fractiousness and the roller coaster rides and so on and so forth. But I think both governments, and I hope both governments will be, will be well judged or better judged historically than sometimes they were at the time. You left in uh, 2013 after serving as Education Minister under Julia Gillard. I think you were sort of hinting on this a bit earlier, but, you know, we, for a long while in Australia, we had a string of very powerful Prime Ministers, Whitlam, Fraser, Hawke, Keating and Howard. Since then, it seems like not one of our Prime Ministers has really been able to get much traction in the country, which suggests it might have something to do with their personalities, but it also suggests some kind of systemic problem there. Do you see that? And have you got any thoughts on that, Peter? Well, I think that one of the things that characterises those Prime Ministers that you mentioned as against our more recent leaders is that most of them had spent a lot of time in the Parliament previously and had come to really understand both how Canberra worked, how the public service worked, and and develop a, a strong sense of, of what the community or, or what the voting majority, at least, and, and, and others, I wouldn't leave everybody behind, was after. I mean, Whitlam was crazy brave, it's true, uh, but he was a great student of history and constitutional law and the parliament, knew it very well. And although Hawke arrived relatively fresh into the parliament, he'd served for a very long period of time uh, in the trade union movement with great distinction. Uh, Keating was, was there forever and a day, intimately, and I think that the later leaders and parliamentarians who became leader in particular probably didn't have quite that level of um, familiarity and comfort. To Julie Gillard's credit, she had to manage a minority parliament. And I think, you know, that's never an easy task. And I think she managed it extremely well. Of the, on the other side of politics, I'm not quite sure why they've come and gone so quickly, but it's partly to do not only with what I've just been talking about, Richard, but really the way in which the participants who shape the debate quite often see it as a game. For apparatchiks and young people who go in who've only ever worked in politics, that's what they've inhabited. It seems like a wrestling ring. Uh, how do I make sure I'm not getting pinned to the mat? And for those who are reporting on it, well, it's much more colourful and exciting to be breathless about whether someone's pinned on the mat than whether the wrestling <laughs> ring has been made of Australian-made or Chinese-made materials. It's not a bad metaphor at all. <laughs> Seeing Midnight Oil play in that famous gig you did in, right in the middle of Manhattan in front of the corporate headquarters of Exxon, the oil giant, right in the middle of yeah. New York City, that's 
well, it's kind of extraordinary. It's a fun thing to do and cheeky and all those sorts of things. But the thing that strikes me, struck me at the time watching your footage is you're singing about very Australian things to a bunch of Americans yeah. and they're sort of lapping it up. I, I'm guessing they just don't know really what, what it is largely you're talking about. It seems to me, it, it's all of a piece, I think, with a kind of a funny kind of love you have, I think, for Australia, you and your, your fellow bandmates do. What kind of a love do you think that is, your love for Australia? Is it a... Is it a tortured love? <laughs> or is it, is it, is it, is it a, a tainted love? A tainted love, indeed. <laughs> you know, is every album a kind of an intervention for a loved one? It's like, mate, you're really, you know, you're really messing up here. We've all gathered the band here and this is what's gone wrong. How do you see that love for Australia that you have and your fellow bandmates? Well, I think it's a deep love. We do have a deep affection for the country and it's partly a product of being able to go to other countries. And you quite often see your own home uh, with more clarity when you're, when you're not in it for a period of time. Uh, it's partly a consequence of us not being persuaded by the glitter and glamour of the business that we're in, but rather more interested in the sorts of things that we're reflecting both as, as, as writers and performers and just as a, as, as a bunch of people who sit around and, and talk about stuff. It's, we're not having a meeting to discuss foreign affairs, but that's more our level of interest. And I think it's finally, underneath all of that, maybe a sense of promise and potential that it just still hasn't been fully realised. And you get a sense that we can be a nation which not, is not great in, in political and, and sort of martial terms, but is great in the opportunities that it provides, A, for its citizens and the people that live in it, and also in the influence that it has on its part of the world and on other parts of the world in particular a world which is, you know, a perilous and, and difficult and dangerous place and certainly very, very fractious at the moment. So, yeah, it's, it's a deep love. And, and the other side of it would be in relation to us playing and singing to people out there. They've heard plenty of people singing about the OK Corral and falling in love with the girl, you know, with the cowboy boots. But they haven't heard someone singing about, you know, the Breakfast Creek Hotel in Brisbane. I mean, forget, you know, put another shrimp on the barbie and every other tourism <laughs> campaign that's gone on ever since. We've done much more for the, for the country in terms of tourism than, than any of that money spent did. It's been great to speak with you, Peter, and thank you so much for your contribution and for everything. Th thank you, Peter. It's been lovely to talk with you today. Hey, no worries. Thanks for having us, Richard. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.